0: Right, so I'll uh, like to share a few thoughts about the practice and I'd like to also leave a little bit of room for questions at the end. So I'll try to be try to stay aware of the time. My sense is that people come to this practice for a variety of different reasons and I think some people come because they hear something about dukkha which is in the Buddhist tradition the first noble truth discontent or sometimes translated as suffering or maybe just dis-ease underlying sense that life could be different or uh, more easeful in some way that We have the awareness that life doesn't always match our expectations. (laughs) Have you noticed that? And so that teaching makes sense. And the whole tradition claims that it can change that. And so we say, okay, well, I'll I'll try this. That sounds... I've tried other things. Maybe I'll try this. Uh And some people orient more toward the the latter half of that example which would be the third noble truth which is cessation or the elimination or alleviation of dukkha or discontent so so people hear that and they think well, that's what I want I want freedom from discontent I want freedom from anxiousness I want freedom from longing for things to be different I want freedom from fill in the blank and it's it's a variation on the same theme. The First Noble Truth and the Third Noble Truth are opposites. And I think some people come to the practice uh, because of mindfulness and the growing popularity of mindfulness, a more secular term, uh, a more widely accepted term for the practice that we're doing, that Now shows up in in schools. I'm going to Mm. later in the month to Los Angeles where I'll visit with a private school there that is interested in having mindfulness be a regular part of its community offerings for young people. And so I'll I'll go and talk with them about uh, how they might do that. And I've done some work in schools here in Massachusetts and uh, until recently, I stopped doing it, but until recently, I visited the holistic psychology, I'm sorry, the holistic nursing department at uh, Endicott, right around the corner, and would occasionally lecture there. And the holistic psychology department at Leslie College has now a mindfulness certificate program. The first place I ever taught meditation was in a private school where I was employed full time. So this idea of mindfulness is uh, really popular, and and that might have originated with uh, Jon Kabat-Zinn's work in mindfulness-based stress reduction. So there's a whole demographic that is interested in the idea of what we call stress reduction, that I can find some way of feeling better. Car commercials now are using references to mindfulness for food companies, right? So these institutions don't email me or call and say, can you come teach about wisdom? They say, can you come teach about mindfulness? And so, so that's another reason that people come to practice. They identify Not so much with mindfulness, but with insight meditation or Vipassana meditation or in the Sanskrit, Vipassana. And they're exactly the same practice. right? Vipassana meditation works with the four foundations of mindfulness. Vipassana meditation is mindfulness meditation. Uh, It's just that when... It's the Vipassana camp is oriented toward classical awakening, total liberation of freedom from suffering, even though the techniques are actually the same. Usually when we're teaching mindfulness in a secular context, we are careful not to use the word Buddha or Buddhism or Dharma. We leave all of that out and we teach all the same stuff. (laughs) Whether people know we're doing that or want us to do that, there's no other way of doing it. Mindfulness is insight meditation and insight meditation is mindfulness. Which really leads me to the last way the, the, the last thing that came up for me in reflecting on why people might come to the practice and maybe there are reasons that you've come that I'm not listing necessarily. This is just a response to a, a short reflection uh, to prepare to have some conversation with you and I think that some people come to this path because they're interested in Buddhism. That that actually appeals. There's something, a tradition, something long-standing, something with an ism at the end of it. Uh, I know that for me, when I was really young, I was uh, I was enamored by churches. I loved. To go in, particularly older churches, or where a lot of attention to detail had been invested in the architecture of the main nave, and uh, I liked the music. And if, you know, particularly in Europe, if there was any imagery on the wall, I was uh, totally captivated. Uh, And I liked the idea that it was a place where people came to do something very intentional. That's what I was. I didn't have that language for it. This is. As an adult looking back, I like the idea that people came somewhere with some regularity and they did something intentional that had, for all intents and purposes, a really, there a, a really, um, was a good purpose. Now, for me, uh, most of the traditions that unpacked themselves in the name of a church didn't work for me, and one of the ways I came to understand that is that they simply weren't experiential enough. I mean, you know, to put it in a secular context, it just, um, I was interested in the study of psychology and philosophy that I identified with religion, but when I found the Eastern traditions, they were more experiential, and then I could study philosophy and psychology, but also, uh, for me, it was more, it was, the the experiential aspect of the path was more apparent in the Eastern traditions, if you will. So it was easy for me to become interested in something that we call Buddhism, but really the ism is what will block certain people from trying anything, and what is institutional about it, and what historically might be and even still sometimes dogmatic about any ism is doesn't allow us access right and I think some people come to this path or this practice uh, because there tends to be at least in our country and in my experience uh, there tends to be some openness to bringing other faith views or faith traditions into the practice. Like somebody can study mindfulness and practice mindfulness and go to church or go to the synagogue. It actually, and a lot of people do, a lot of people practice that way uh, and it's appropriate to practice that way. Um, and then thirdly, I am aware of a lot of people coming to this practice uh, because it's actually compatible uh, with no re- like, it, it's if, if one is not oriented at, at all toward religion they sometimes find that this is actually compatible with their view and, 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 and in that view uh, their view uh, might require no religion whatever religion means to that person and meditation practice can fit with that. Meditation practice is understanding how the mind works. The the Siddhartha Gautama, who later became called the Buddha, after which Buddhism uh, came about, wasn't in my understanding was much more of a psychologist than a religious teacher. If we look at the early teachings, uh, almost almost clinical in a sense. Not, diag- not diagnostic, but clinical uh, in how sharp he was at understanding the nuance of the mind and talking about ways of changing the mind and showing people ways of changing the mind. There's, a, there's another way of thinking about this path, and it does lean toward the Buddhist side of it or toward the Dharma side. Uh, and this is what I want to talk about today. And this, this frame, uh, this way of thinking about practice is, as some of you probably know, the three jewels or the three gems. And this is the Buddha the Dharma, and the Sangha. And it's said that we, if we like, can take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma, and the Sangha. Now, in some cases, there's a formality to that, where, like being baptized or going through confirmation or something, people will uh, have a relationship with a teacher and there'll be a point in their practice where they want, they want something uh, ritualistic or ceremonial to mark a commitment to waking up. Uh, they want to mark their commitment to a path of meditation, practice, and study. And so they, uh, with a teacher who's uh, authorized to offer the refuge vow ceremony, they take refuge in the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha. Uh, So outside of the form, the formality of uh, a ceremony, uh, some people identify as simply taking refuge in what those three terms represent, right? Uh, Regardless of other ways that they're learning or affiliation with other schools of psychology or faith traditions, et cetera, et cetera. The idea that we take refuge in the Buddha can mean uh, any number of different things. On the one hand, there is some association with a historical figure, should that appeal to someone, that Siddhartha Gautama was a person and they, we understand for a significant period of time, became very interested in meditation and actually left the religious systems and training methods of India at that time in search of something totally different. And developed, came up with what we now call mindfulness or, or insight meditation, as well as what we call heart practices, uh, kindness compassion, equanimity, and joy. That's sort of his, his major contributions. Um, so we take refuge, if we like, not unlike other religions, in someone who has done this, who has, in the Buddhist tradition, woken up. And I think more universally, the idea gets at the possibility that we can... Uh, take refuge in our own awakened potential, right? So there we have space now to participate in other, uh, other faith traditions, other schools, other, other schools of thought, right? So we can take, re- so the, the, the Buddha now is archetypal, and we're taking refuge in our own capacity for seeing clearly, being wise, being kind, being less confused, being more skillful. Period. Right. Second, we can take refuge in the Dharma. This is suggesting that we can uh, go to, that we uh, invest time, energy in, that we begin to to some extent rely on. Maybe not exclusively, but we rely on. The teachings and the technique, the meditation technique, right? So there's, there's something in place that serves our investigation of self, of suffering and of freedom. And we take, we take refuge in that. We go toward that. We go toward the teachings. We go toward the technique. We actually use them. We, we build a relationship with them. We spend time with them. And this is, a, this is one of the Buddha's threefold lists. It's the three gems or the three jewels. And the third refuge is the Sangha. Sangha is the Pali word for community. And the idea here is that we, we drop some of our solitude, even though it's a very individualistic path. We drop any dismissive tendencies. We drop... Uh, the idea that we can do it alone and we, we explore the possibility of reciprocity in practice and reciprocity in waking up and being more free and one of the best ways I can explain that is um, notice the difference between sitting at a meditation center with a group of people compared to home and just most people will report that feeling the presence of a teacher in the room and a bunch of people sitting around us allows us to actually just stay in the seat for 30 minutes you mm-hmm. know uh, and I, I I mentor meditation students all around the country we talk on Skype every two weeks and almost every person will report that it's harder to practice by themselves at home than with community mm-hmm. almost invariably it's, very very few exceptions to that. So that's the best way that we can understand that that teaching. So to take refuge in something is to move in a particular direction, right? We in fact we're always we're always taking refuge Always. Usually unconsciously, we're taking refuge in our conditioning. We're taking refuge in our pattern, unconscious pattern behavior. We're taking refuge in thinking about the future. We're taking refuge in replaying events from the past. We're taking refuge in distracting ourselves with email or watching the news. Or we're taking refuge in the refrigerator when we're anxious or for some people drugs and alcohol or uh, any variation of distraction we're always taking refuge in something and so the the question at hand and any awareness practice is are, are we aware of what we're taking refuge in and are we aware of the outcome of that conscious or unconscious choice And is the outcome beneficial or not? That's the whole practice. There's no ism in there, but that's actually, in terms of function, that's what we're doing. Practically speaking, that's what we're doing. And so to take refuge in something is to renounce something else. So refuge is moving toward something, ultimately toward awakening and psychological freedom, as a vehicle Toward the three jewels, the Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha, and it's renouncing something else, right? Or many other things. But more you know, generally, broadly, it's renouncing all of our conditioning, right? And we use mm-hmm. the practice to support that. On the on the level of Buddha, the first jewel, we might renounce simply the idea that things are going to stay the way they are. Like the idea that uh, I can't change. I had a conversation with a student yesterday who wants to make a a a vocational shift and they're very clear about how they would like their life to be set up professionally and they're also very clear that self-doubt and fear Get in the way, and the idea that they can't change. So to take refuge in the idea of Buddha and our own awakened potential is to take refuge in the idea of transformation, which is to renounce the idea that we can't change, that we can't have what we want, that we can't become healthier, wiser, kinder, less stressed, less anxious, etc. To take refuge in the Dharma is to renounce strategies that don't work. Eating is actually not, in the long run, the best antidote to stress, right? For, you know, for example. And I also think that uh, taking refuge in the, in the Dharma is, is renouncing dabbling in getting better or change, mm-hmm. it's actually like, it's actually hunkering down and saying, okay, I'm really, I'm actually gonna do this. I'm actually gonna, I'm actually gonna do this. I, I, had, a me- I had a meeting last night with someone who plays an important role in the organization, uh, one, of, one of the organizations that I'm involved with, and they said, I'm, you know, my life is full enough that I'm not meditating very much, mm. right? And so we had a conversation about that, you know. What do you, what do you really want? And I don't make assumptions that a meditation is really what everyone wants. I mean, that assumption is higher when I'm at a meditation center, but... Uh, so I said, well, do you, have you practiced meditation enough that you mostly like it? And they said, yeah. And they're a mature practitioner, so they, they know that meditation is not filled with, always filled with joy and... But they said, yeah, I like it. And I said, do you know that it's beneficial for you? And they said, yeah. And I said, okay, well, you need to do it more. (laughs) You know, it's like, it's that simple. And then we get into conversations around, like, the myth of time. And, you know, of course, we get busy, and the first thing that goes is a lot of our strategies for wellness, right? We actually believe that if we keep packing things into our schedule or keep checking things off our to-do list, that we'll be better off. But particularly for meditators, we find that regardless of how many things are on our to-do list, if we prioritize meditation practice, the to-do list somehow feels more possible. There's a, there's a different kind of efficiency. We approach it differently. And even to the extent that we don't complete the list, which is almost always, at least in my life, there's a little bit more equanimity with that. There's a sense of understanding the limitations. Right? There's wisdom. And then I, I alluded to this earlier, but taking refuge in the, in the Sangha is to renounce the idea that we can do it alone. Now, on this path, a very contemplative tradition, and if you go on meditation retreat, you don't talk, and you're, you know, it, it has a it has something very solitary about it. And we don't exclusively change or get better if we're working on, if, 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 if the path feels like it's a getting better path or if, if it feels like I'm transforming or getting more, you know, it's more of, I wanna transform this and have more of that. Uh, to some extent, yes, it's an individual project. It's always an inside job, but that we can do it alone. Uh, for most people, maybe not for everybody, but for most people, this is a this would be considered in, in Buddhist terminology wrong view. Um, so some people take refuge in the Sangha literally meditating with others. Some people take refuge in friendship or primary partnership or working with a clinician or a therapist or you know, we find ways of letting other people and we let other people see us because so much Uh, of the change required for transformation uh, is not repressing, right? So much of the change required for transformation is being honest with ourselves and ultimately, ultimately with others about those parts of ourselves that are underdeveloped, limited, blocked in some way, right? And so we see that that's actually not our fault, that's our conditioning, right? It's not personal. It's impersonal and it's universal. And so that's where the humility and the ability to expose ourselves comes from. You Once you see it that way, you already have some level of right view and wisdom. And then you just share. And it's you're sort of like, okay, help me. Let's be human beings together on this sometimes difficult path and Let's in in, in that fine mutual support. So you let other people be there for you, and and you show up for other people, and you support them if and when you can. So these are my thoughts on what we call the triple gem or the the three jewels. They're valuable. They're jewels, right? They have a they have a high worth, the the Buddha Dharma and Sangha. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm.